ladies and gentlemen, Cardinal fans of all ages, welcome to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. I'm Chris Grace. I'll be your host, joined every week by current Wesleyan Athletic Director and former head football coach, Mike Whalen. Each week, Coach and I will interview some of your favorite former Cardinals and find out exactly what they've been up to. Without further ado, it's time to check in with the coach, Mike Whalen. Coach, how exciting is it? We've been talking about this. We've been dying for content, and now finally we've made it happen. I thought I wasn't going to be able to spend any days with you this fall, but boy, my luck has changed. The first episode of Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score, talking Wesleyan Athletics. Coach, I'm so happy that we could get this all to come together. No, it's great, Chris, and I'm really appreciative that you uh, are willing to work with us. Uh, certainly, we're, we all wish we were... Uh, you know, out there uh, watching our, our, our favorite Cardinal teams compete. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we it, it's disappointing, I know, for our student-athletes and our coaches. But, you know, this is a great opportunity for you and I just to spend some time with some great Cardinal alums, some great former Cardinals that are out there just doing some really, really special things in the world and people that we're really proud of and uh, excited to, uh, to let, you know, our, our alumni parents and followers uh, get a little closer look at uh, you know how Wesleyan's impacted their lives and 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 what they've given back to Wesleyan since they graduated. Yeah, you guys are not going to believe the first couple of guests we're going to have on this show, but we're going to tease that for just a little while longer. Before that, I want to let everybody know how you can contribute to this podcast because we want this to be a community podcast. So anyone who's listening, if you have any thoughts, ideas, questions, uh, any future guests that you'd like to see or hear on the podcast, rather. You can email athletics at wesleyan.edu. Just use the subject line, Chris and Coach, beyond the box score, and, and we'll, we'll, of course, get back to you as quickly as possible. And uh, Mike O'Brien, who's our producer, is also with us. And Mike, tell, them, tell everybody else about some of the other ways that they can communicate with us here in this podcast endeavor. Yeah, so the, I think the greatest ways to reach us would be on uh... – Social media, uh, as well as that email account that you just sent out, too. But you could follow us on Twitter at, at Wes underscore athletics. Uh, and you could also reach us on Instagram as well, at Wes underscore athletics. Mike O'Brien, the man behind the scenes, the man with the plan. All right, Coach, we've teased it long enough. Who is our first guest going to be? It's got to be, it's got to be, it's got to be someone, what, what is it, like a, uh, like a minor league baseball coach? Or, or what do we have? Like, is it... Uh, I don't know, it's like a, a really prominent high school football coach. Who, who do we have for our first guest today? Well, Chris, you're, you're in the right, you know, you, you started off by saying baseball, so you're in the right sport. You're, you're just a few levels below where we're starting because Chris and Coach, we don't start, nothing wrong with being a high school coach, by the way. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being a youth coach. We support coaches Absolutely. at every level, every level. However, we're going, we're going to a two-time, actually three-time, World Series champion, okay? Two with the Red Sox, one with the Chicago Cubs. Jed Hoyer, great, former great Wesleyan baseball player, is going to be kicking off our show. You heard him right. We are talking with Chicago Cubs general manager, Wesleyan alum, and by the way, Wesleyan career saves leader, Jed Hoyer. Don't forget, he's not just a man who makes the moves. He also had some moves in his day as well, and we're going to catch up with Jed in, in just a couple of minutes. But before we do that, Coach, just want to catch up with you. How's everything been going at the at Wesleyan and during this tough time? I know people probably want to hear from your perspective, give them some updates on, on how everything's been within the athletic department and what's had to have been just a crazy, stressful, strenuous, difficult time for everybody. Well, we'll start with the bad news. The bad news is, as we've touched upon, is there's no competitive uh, sports uh, at Wesleyan in terms of you know, competitions. So the NESCAC is completely shut down for the fall, and we will make a, uh, a decision on winter sports at a, at a later later time this semester. Uh, the good news is is that, uh, you know, we've got a full campus. Uh, our students are back. We're into the third week of classes, and uh, our coaches are really excited to begin working with their teams. And when I say that, you know, one of the great things that our uh, – our NESCAC presidents did was because of COVID, they essentially said, we're going to loosen the reins a little bit and we're going to allow our coaches to have more interaction 
with our student athletes. So we've got our spring teams who are going to be getting some practices in this fall. Uh, we've got our winter teams who usually start November 1st are now starting October 15th. So there's going to be a point this fall where every sport at Wesleyan is practicing. Every sport is working with their coaches trying to get better. And I know our coaches are excited about that. Our student athletes are excited about that. And we all want to get back to, to uh, the tailgates, to competing, to, to being with our family and friends and rooting on our Cardinals to victory. But until then, we're going to focus on doing everything we can to, to best prepare our student athletes for their next athletic competition, whenever that may be. We can't control that. But what we can control is how we, as coaches and administrators, can do the best to advocate for the best possible, robust experience, most, most robust experience for our student athletes. All right, you heard it, Coach. Uh, you heard that's Coach actually. You heard it from Coach. Sorry, as uh, you know, like we've been talking about, no one wants to be there as badly as I do, Coach. I, you know, I can't remember the last time I've called a live sporting event. It's been so long, but I'm so glad that we could start off this podcast series with such a great guest. And without further ado, it's now time to welcome in the general manager of the Chicago Cubs, Jed Hoyer. We welcome in Cubs general manager. And more importantly, to many that are listening, Wesleyan 1996 graduate and Cardinal all-time saves leader, Jed Hoyer. Jed, it's it's really just so awesome that you could spend some time with us. We have so much we want to talk to you about. And I know all the Cardinal fans are going stir-crazy without any Cardinal athletics. So what better way to entertain than to have one of their favorite alums on with us? So it's, it's just really great to have you with us here uh, to, to get this podcast going. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for having me. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, there, you've got so much going on right now with with the uh, shortened baseball season. And we'll get to all the stuff going on with the Cubbies because you guys are having a really nice season and really want to touch on some of the stuff that you you uh, did with the Red Sox and how you got involved being a GM. But a lot of people don't realize you were a fantastic college baseball player, still currently hold the Wesleyan career saves lead and uh, also played shortstop four-year guy, played in a College World Series. Tell everyone everyone out there, um, first of all, what your baseball background was and, and, and more importantly, what your baseball experience was like at Wesleyan and how it kind of maybe even led to your passion at, uh, becoming a GM right now and, and, and how your, you know, your four years at Wesleyan kind of propelled you to what you're currently doing. Sure. Now, um, I appreciate it. And it's funny, I, I work with the the best players in the world every day. So my own career has sort of um, drifted to the background. I don't think often about, about playing anymore, but you know, I look back, I grew up, um, I grew up in New Hampshire and I just grew up playing all sports. You know, baseball was always my, my favorite sport, but I played football, basketball, baseball. Um, I wrestled a little bit. I played some hockey and it was just sort of as many sports as I possibly could do all the time. Uh, it was pretty clear um, in high school that if I was going to play college sports, it was, it was going to be baseball. And that was what I spent all summer doing was, was playing like Legion ball and, and playing tournaments and stuff. So um, despite the fact that I love playing football, I love playing basketball, that was always going to, you know, I'm five, nine. I, I didn't have any um, delusions of grandeur about football or, uh, or basketball. So, yeah, I always loved baseball. I played a ton, and um, you know, as I sort of started my college search, um, you know, I really wanted to be able to continue to play, and and that was uh, that was really important to me. I looked at some schools, some southern schools. I wouldn't have probably been able to uh, play baseball early on. I would have had to walk on, and I realized that you know, going to a small school uh, in New England and, and being able to have athletics as a significant part of my routine was really important to me. And also, Chad, I think uh, um, the, the, the stories the stories go. Number one is grew up in Plymouth, New Hampshire, which is we have to give the shout out to Coach Desenzo as well because yes, Coach Desenzo, and he says Coach Desenzo was a baseball player. He says he grew up idolizing Jed Hoyer. That's who he wanted to be as a baseball player. So just <laughs> just so just so you have that little tidbit, and then it's, it's, two, a, it's a small world. Yeah, he literally lived down the hill from me. 
And the idea that he's he's at Wesleyan now, uh, head football coach, and doing a great job is so it's so fun for me. I follow it anyway, but I follow uh, Dan so much just because of his family and and um, because, like I said, he was one. Of, he was like my sister's age, was about five or six years younger than me, and uh, I kind of grew up around him. And um, it's fun to see him having this kind of success. Yeah, and then also you had a teammate at Plymouth High School. That was recruited by Amherst, right? Uh, well, I went to Holderness. I went to I went to this, oh, okay. the private yeah. school in town, and um, so yeah, the story was. I mean, it's totally true. So it, my my best friend and I, a kid named Jim Gibbons, and uh, we, you know we've been friends forever. And um, he's also a hockey goalie, and so we were both looking at Amherst, both looking at Wesleyan, and. Um, you know, it, candidly, it became pretty clear to me that that you know Am- that Coach Thurston at Amherst would, would preferred Jim to me, and that was sort of a that was sort of my first uh, my first uh, bout with uh, with negative scouting, right? Like you know, it was obvious he liked me, he was recruiting me, but he was certainly recruiting my my friend higher, and it was probably unlikely we were both going to get in coming from the same high school, and um, so you know that that was uh, it was a small factor. I mean, with Wesleyan. I always felt very comfortable on campus. Um, Costi and I hit it off, and I really liked him. I, I, I had a great visit. Actually, I stayed with uh, Coach Woodworth on my visit. So uh, I ended up applying to Wesleyan early, and um, I always tell people that I, you know, I, I spent less time um, researching that decision than I probably should have and more time this, I felt like this feels right. And um, I've probably never spent less time on a huge decision, but I know I got it. I got it right. I had a great experience. Now, did you did you have a little extra juice going into those Amherst games? Yeah, I played really well against them. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I was. Uh, I, I'll be the first person to admit it. I'm, I'm, I'm. Like I said, I'm very modest about my playing career, but I, I always felt I, I needed to prove Coach Thurston wrong uh, when I was playing there, and uh, I had some. I had some really good games against them, and uh, I got to know Bill after. Uh, we were done, and we had a lot of talks about that. But um, I mean, listen, the uh, recruiting seventeen-year-old high school kids ha- kids has to be really difficult. And uh, Jim, my, my buddy Jim, had a really good career there as well. But yeah, there's no doubt. Um, we used to have a little. We used to have uh, a bat that went back and forth depending on who won. And uh, I think we were nine and three against them when I was there. In fact, I know that's what we were. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I was, I'm competitive. Yes. Yeah. So for everyone, for everyone who, who's just joining us or maybe maybe uh, not sure exactly what you're listening to, this is a brand new podcast. Coach Whalen and myself, Chris Grace, and it, we're calling it Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. Our first guest, Chicago Cubs general manager, Jed Hoyer, Wesleyan 96 baseball alum. Jed has been so nice to give us, give us his time here uh, as we're recording this on a Wednesday morning. Uh, Jed, you, you talked about your Wesleyan history. You guys also, you were part of perhaps the most, one of, if not the most successful uh, era of Wesleyan baseball. Um, in 1994, you guys went to the College World Series when you were a sophomore. A senior on that team is the current Wesleyan baseball coach, Mark Woodworth. And you, you mentioned before talking to Coach Whalen that, that you had stayed with, with Woody when you had uh, visited the school. Do you have any, I mean, anyone who knows Woody, he's just a classic human being. What is your favorite, if you can tell it, what is your favorite, what is your favorite Woody story? Uh, well, I can't tell those, but you know, I will, <laughs> um, I will say he, he's one of my oldest friends. And, and like I said, he was my recruiting person. Um, when I, when I went to, when I went to Wesleyan and, um, was really great to me when I first got on campus. And I remember really vividly, I remember uh, going out and playing with him, you know, taking ground balls and, and hitting with him like the first week I was on campus and it was a good eye opener that, you know, he was, uh, he was a really good player. He's a really good shortstop. And, uh, you know, I think I felt pretty good about myself coming in and I just had a good summer of, of playing baseball and I felt good. And, uh, I remember the first couple of times we took ground balls together, the first t- couple of times we hit, I was like, Oh, like I've got, I've got a ways to go. And, um, I think that's the way college sports should be. Uh, but he was a great teammate. Uh, really good defensive shortstop, and um, I mean he was uh, 
I, I played left field my my sophomore year because Mark was uh, the better shortstop and uh, he was the kind of the defensive rock when, when we went to the College World Series. So you, you talk about that year you guys went to the College World Series. What is your, your, your lasting moment of that 94 season? And what do you think led, you know, to, to such a magical run? And, and how did it just all kind of go together? Because it's so difficult, especially at the D3 level when you don't get to play as many games and, and you're really kind of, you know, it's every game is kind of on a knife edge. You have no room for error. So everything kind of has to click and, and, and go perfectly. How, yeah. how do you describe that run? Yeah, so it's really interesting, actually. So 1994, I think in the maybe the, the spring of 93, they announced that um, NESCAC teams could play in NCAA tournaments. And, and prior to, to that, all you could do is is, um, is play in, uh, I forget, actually, the ECAC. ECAC, the, yeah. The most you could play. So you couldn't even play in the NCAA tournament. And so that year was the first year NESCAC teams were allowed to do it. So it was such an unknown, and that became our goal was to just to qualify for the for the tournament. And then I think we were twenty four and six, and we ended up um, being the number one seed. But they didn't really take us all that seriously because the the teams that were in it were these kind of traditional powerhouses, you know, like Southern Maine or Eastern Connecticut, and those teams that were there every every single year. And so I think they looked at Wesleyan as you know kind of random. But we hosted the. We hosted the tournament. They, they played it at uh, Palmer Field uh, in Middletown, and uh, we won all three games in the the regional. And that was, I mean, there's a lot of great memories, but that was such a great memory where you know we went into that tournament, you know, sort of excited to be there. We weren't supposed to be there in that first year, and uh, we just played great. You know, won all of our games. We were we had a uh, Craig Brewer was the was um, my roommate that year. I think he went twelve and zero and. And um, you know, he was really the reason we were able to get off to a good start. You know, he threw a, threw a great game in the first game and, and got us rolling. But I just remember the simple things. All of our families were there. And I just remember like sitting out in the parking lot at Palmer Field after we had won the New Englands. And we were it was sort of surreal. Like, wait, we're, we're going to Michigan. We're going to the College World Series. And that had been a goal, but sort of a, a way far out there goal. Our, our goal really was just to make the tournament at all. And um, – you know, there's like simple memories of things like that. You know, I have a picture of the, I was on the mound. I was so excited because I, I played left field that year and uh, I came in to close out the last out. So I only threw, I only threw to one batter, I think. And, um, but I was able to be on the mound when we won. So it's, I feel like I, it's kind of, a, I kind of vultured that. Right? <laughs> it should have been, it should have been someone else. But I still have a picture on my wall in my office of that last out and uh, in the New Englands and, uh, it, certainly great memories. And then we went to the college world series and, and played well, you know, we, we were three and two there. And uh, the only game, the only two games we lost were to uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh. Uh, we lost in the final game to um, Jared Washburn was a starting pitcher. And I don't know how many wins he had in the big leagues, 150 or yeah. so he was a second rounder. And so um, we were definitely the second best team we were not the best I mean they were they were better than us they beat us but uh, it was it was an amazing run and you know one of the you know, certainly the highlight of my athletic career um, from playing without a doubt um, and I've never had that experience I never had the experience before where you kind of described it as a magical run you just kept going and the momentum kept building and we're all together you know staying in a hotel and you know staying in dorms and all we did you know morning noon and night was was prepare and play and talk about it. And, um, it was, uh, it was really, it was really amazing. And, uh, you know, I think that group of guys will always be, you know, bonded by that. And we're all still good friends. And, um, you know, a lot of ways that's sort of the beauty of college sports, right? You're trying as a group to accomplish something special. And, uh, you know, that group was able to do it. I got to ask you, Jay. So, you know, prior to me coming back to Williams in 2010, uh, I mean, coming back to Wesleyan in 2010, I was at Williams, and um, <clears throat> Dave Barnard, Wesleyan grad, head baseball coach. Mm-hmm. To this day, he still talks about the day where Costi started you on both games of the doubleheader against Williams. Talk about that a little bit. So, <laughs> so it's funny. I'm actually the, the things I'm really proud of that, that you can't do anymore. So, I pitched 30. I think it's 30 in the third innings in a 10 day span my junior year. Um, 
and it started, we had a doubleheader against Williams and I pitched the first, first game, which I was supposed to, and I pitched the first five innings and we were up like 10 to nothing or something like that. And so in the fifth inning, Costi came to me and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to start you the second game. I'm going to take you out. So <laughs> he took me out. I went back and played shortstop the last two innings, I think of the, of the first game. And then I pitched all seven innings of the second game and we won. And so I was like, that was a lot of fun. I just pitched 12 innings and you know, we won, we won two games. And then the next weekend we played Amherst and he told me beforehand, he's like, I'm going to do the same thing. And so <laughs> I threw, I don't remember exactly how many innings I threw the, that, that doubleheader against Amherst, but I won the first game, and then I, we lost the second game. Um, and, then, and then so the, um, to win the little three, it came down to the, we played a single game the next week against, against Amherst, and the game was supposed to be on a Wednesday. And if you ask my buddy Jim to this day, he gets really angry talking about this because it, it got rained out on Wednesday and there was not a lot of rain, but Costi rained out the game. <laughs> and so uh, on Wednesday we didn't play. And then on Thursday I started um, and I threw whatever it was like eight plus innings and we won the game on Thursday and Amherst was apoplectic because they thought we rained out the game. So I could, I could go back and pitch again on Thursday. <laughs> and, and so I remember I was, I was really good friends with all those Amherst guys because of Jim and they were yelling, yelling at Costi from the bench during the game. Like, are you going to pay for his surgery? <laughs> so, but, but the thing is, is I didn't care. I, I look back now and I knew, I knew enough to know that like, that was the end of my, I, I was going to play baseball at Wesleyan. I just wanted to win. I wanted to, to play with my buddies and, and be successful. And, and that was my goal. I knew I wasn't going to play in the big leagues. I, I, I wasn't, that was it. And so for me, I was perfectly happy to pitch as much as possible. I wasn't worried about my future. I was just worried about now. And, you know, I think now that's changed a lot. Um, there's so many different, you know, regulations and stuff. And I'm really happy I, I, that I played in an era where we didn't have that because it was just about going out and competing and, no one was as worried about pitch counts or innings limits or, or things like that. Uh, in fact, I, I never show anything about my own career to the, the guys at the Cubs, but uh, it, at one point um, they sent me like a, a book of all of our box scores from, you know, I think that I pitched in in my career, I think uh, around the Hall of Fame time. And the first game of the year in, in my, my junior year, I pitched 10 innings. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking to myself, in, in in today's game, that'd be like a three inning outing and then a four inning outing, and you you'd build up slowly coming out of the gym, and and you know, you wouldn't throw more than like 65, 70 pitches, and and, and I probably threw 140 pitches the first game of the year. And like I said, I'm glad I I'm glad I could do that because now I'd be restricted, and you know why? Like I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't playing beyond Wesley and I was just having fun in the moment. And, uh, I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad I was able to, to do that. So Jed, you know, you talked about how, when, when you played in the world series, you went up against a former, a former and future big leaguer and Jared Washburn, who you mentioned had a really, really nice career over, boy, I feel like it was over a decade that he, that he yep. pitched in the show. Um, and you knew that that wasn't going to be you. So, so you knew that you were going out on your sword, like you just said. You were you you knew how many bullets you had in the arm, and you were going to use them all up, right? And I think that's what's so cool about Division three sports in general is that most of the kids, there's going to be an outlier. There's going to be a Washburn out there. You're gonna you're gonna occasionally see guys like that, but it's it's rare. So it's kind of a different camaraderie because these guys aren't playing with the pressure of worrying about oh, am I going to get drafted? Oh, you know what? You know, am I worried about getting a guy over because my batting average is going to go down? They're just playing baseball for the love of it. And I think that's so cool. Would you encourage someone who could be a, you know, like a fringe D1 guy, but maybe not play to go to a, a D3 school and, and guarantee play based on your experience? How, how would you, how, what would you tell a parent? What kind of advice would you give someone who has a kid that would maybe be a backup at a, at a low level D1 school or could maybe have the, a similar experience that you had at a school like Wesleyan? Yeah, that's no, a great question. I mean, I think yeah, it depends on what you're what you're looking for. But you know, for me, 
you know, I would never trade the, the ability to, you know, play multiple positions and you know, pitch. And I mean, I would play shortstop and I come in and close. And, you know, I, I played in, you know, I played, I played in the Cape League after my junior year. And, you know, I'm sure that I could have, you know, been on a bench at some of those division one schools or played sparingly or whatever, but I wouldn't trade the ability to, to do what I did for anything. And, and I think, yeah, I think if you know that you're not going to go on and not going to play professionally, I think that just being able to compete, go to the best academic school you can compete um, and, and, and be part of something special. I mean, I, I do feel as much as it's cliche, I think when I was playing sports in college, like people would talk about the value of sports or what sports means or, you know, why we do it. And I just, I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to play and compete and, and, and be a good teammate and, and, and win. And I think now that I have kids and now that I'm older and now that I step back from it, I do a hundred percent realize all those life lessons I was learning. Like you don't learn, you don't realize those lessons in the moment, but I think that when you look back, you know, being willing to sort of sacrifice yourself for the group um, dealing with failure, dealing with success, like all these different things you learn by competing. I don't think you learn those as much when you're not playing as you do when you're playing. You know, my, my freshman year, um, I'll never forget, I started the first game of my freshman year at third base, and I was like, you know, God, this is awesome. I'm going to start as a freshman. I went 0 for 3 and made like two errors in my first game of the year, and I got like five more at-bats the rest of the season. <laughs> And it was like, it was unbelievably humbling. And I thought I was going to go in and start. And you know, next thing I know, I'm sitting on the bench and, you know, Costi will barely look at me and begging to get in any game at all. Um, I think that that's a really valuable life experience. You know, what was I going to do? I mean, I, you can't complain about it. The, the coaches make out the lineup and, you know, as, as he used to always say, you don't think I want to win also, you know, I'm putting the best guys out there. So I don't think you're one of the best guys. And, you know, having to kind of come back from that and, and, and work out all winter and kind of rededicate myself to being good enough to play. I just think that that's the kind of lesson that you, that, you know, that's a great life lesson. And, and I think that uh, I realize those things now looking back way more than I realize them in the moment. So you talk about, you talk about Costi, we, we, before we move into your professional, which we really <laughs> want to spend some time on, you, you got to give us your favorite Costi story. I mean, He's a legend. Everybody knows he's a legend. I mean, he coached me in football. I've got several favorite Costi stories, but I want to hear your favorite Costi story. Yeah, I mean, he was he was the best. I, I not only did I, I play for him for four years, but uh, I coached with him for a couple of years after, and you know, we were we were pretty friendly at that you know at that point. Um, this sort of encapsulates the way he was with me as a player, and um, I remember so my my junior year. I had a much better junior year than I did a senior year. And I played really well as a junior. And then my senior year, like I must've gone like, Oh, for three in my first game and like one for four or five in the second game. So it was like the third game of the season and we're staying in, in Florida and he calls me out to the pool and it's just me and him. And he's like, listen, he's like, um, I think I'm just going to have you pitch now. I was like, what? He's like, you're not a very good hitter. You're not a good hitter. Um, I don't want to watch this anymore. Um, you know what? Like, just focus on your pitching. Like, let's, you know. And and he basically made me beg him after having a really good year. Two games into the season, I had to basically beg him to continue playing. And I left that meeting, you know, so angry. And I think I hit two home runs in my, in my college career. I let off the game, that game afternoon with a home run. And I came, I, I kind of come back to the bench and he's just got the biggest smirk. And I was like, God, like every time is always knowing how to push my buttons and knowing, knowing how to motivate. And when I coached with him, I really saw that, Like he knew which kids, you know, he could motivate with the stick and which kids he really had to put his arm around. And he didn't, he wasn't very good at the arm around thing. He was pretty good at the stick. Um, <laughs> but, but I always felt like he really understood human nature and which kids he could push and, he always was able to, to do that with me. Um, I was going to say um, one of my favorite stories, it wasn't even a, um, a baseball story, but it's kind of what he was like. I remember he, I get a phone call probably my junior or senior year in my room. He's like, Jed, I need you to come over 
I need you to shovel snow in my driveway. <laughs> I was like, yeah, coach, sure. Like, that's great. He goes, this is how old men die, and you don't want me to die. <laughs> and, he, and he just hangs up. And so I, I show up at his house. I, 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 shovel, I shovel his walkway. But it was his classic Costi, you know, this is how old men die. But the truth is on Costi, honestly, like he um, – I think I said this um, in my speech when I when I came back for the Hall of Fame thing that there's only two people I quote on a regular basis. It's you know my mom and and Costi and you know um, he was just he's a wise guy, a wise man, and I feel like he like I said he understood human nature. He understood how to motivate people. He was not the best baseball teacher in terms of pitching mechanics or hitting mechanics. He was a fantastic in game manager, and and I learned a lot from him, but in how to motivate people and he wanted tough characters and he wanted people that could really compete. And I feel like that was really the, the, the biggest wisdom I took from him is that he, that was what he was focused on. Like, are you willing to compete? How are you going to do under pressure? And uh, I think that's what he was trying to build in a team far more than he was trying to correct your swing. Um, and so I, like I said, I learned so much from him. Um, the two years I coached with him, I probably learned as much about baseball as any, any time I've had. And um, he's a great, he's a, a fantastic Wesleyan character for sure. So Jed, obviously you're, you're, you left, you know, quite a footprint on campus with the, with what you did as a baseball player. But did you ever think when, when you were, you know, leaving Middletown that you were going to be sitting in an office at, at Wrigley Field as the, uh, general manager of the Chicago Cubs. Did you ever think that was how, what I'm basically getting at is how on earth did you end up, first of all, getting, you know, tell everyone how you, you got your start with the Red Sox and, and how you ended up where you are today. Well, no, it's a, it's a good story. How I, how I got my opportunity. You know, I was, I worked at Wesleyan for three years after, and then I left and I, w- I was working for a, a company uh, in Boston. I got a job set up through a, a trustee and, um, company ended up going out of business. Um, and so then I got another job at a consulting firm and, uh, the project I was working on got cut. And so then I got another job and I was sort of sputtering, I guess, to be honest, like I was, the jobs I had were pretty good, but I was just, it was very inconsistent and I was just not that happy about it. And, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, Mark Woodworth was one of my really close friends. And I think I was probably complaining, complaining to him at that point. Like, I don't know, what am I doing? Like, I don't really like what I'm doing. And, I think I was 26 at the time or so. And I was lying on my couch one night uh, in my apartment uh, on College Avenue near Tufts in, in, in Somerville. And I get a phone call and it, it's Mark. And Mark was coaching at Amherst at the time. And he's like, hey, you know, Ben Charrington from the Red Sox called Coach Thurston. And he's looking for an intern. And he always hires like an Amherst kid to be the intern. But he's like, I thought, yeah, you, you might want to give him a call. Like he's, you know, he's looking to hire someone and you know, Ben from, from playing against him. And so the next day I got Ben's number and I called Ben. And like I said, we knew each other a little bit. And I talked to Ben for like an hour and I just kept following up and following up and following up. And you know, Ben didn't really want to hire me because he was looking for like a 22 year old kid just out of college. And he's like, you know, what are you doing? Like, this isn't for you. You know, you're, you have a real job. And, I was like, man, this is, I, I look at this as like grad school. Like, I don't care if I have to go into debt to take an internship. Like I'll just, I'll do this instead of go to, go to grad school. And so finally that was, I, I think the first conversation was in August of 2001. And I think he hired me for real in March of 2002. And I mean, I, I definitely blurred the line between persistence and annoyance. I'm sure with Ben, you know, I was, I was determined to get that job. And then, once I got the job, it was an internship. Once I got the job, I think the, my prior experiences really helped me because I realized this was, this was my chance. This was my, my shot. And I, all I had was a, a, an, an internship from March until October. And then in October, they were going to determine if I was going to get a full-time job or not. And so I, I broke every single Red Sox record for hours worked that summer. And it was over like, over a hundred, a lot of weeks. And I was just, I never left the office and 
like I said, I think had I not had some of those experiences along the way, I wouldn't realize just how special this chance was. Like if I had been, if I had gotten that job right out of Wesley and I might not have, I don't want to say been as hungry, but I wouldn't have realized like, no, no, this is your one shot. This doesn't come around very often. And so I really killed myself that first summer and I got lucky. Uh, Theo Epstein started, he came in as assistant GM from the pot. He came from the Padres to the Red Sox and, you know, Theo and I hit it off really well. And um, he kind of took me under his wing. I started working for him that first summer and then he ended up getting the GM job at 28 years old uh you know later that year and so at that point the guy i had been working for was now the gm he just kept me kept me with him so there was a lot of luck involved but i also will say like once i got my foot in the door i realized like there's no way i'm i'm you know that door shutting again i'm gonna make sure that i i i I pound through it and that's why i tell all the kids that come in here just like listen you did the hardest part you got in but now you have to like prove that you're you're worth you can stay and i think that that was the that was the part i did well but it was really serendipitous if if not for mark woodworth overhearing that conversation with ben and coach thurston i never would have had this chance you know it's it's so interesting because you talk about obviously everything that you've in most of your stops you've been there and theo's been there too right you guys have developed this great relationship you know for, for you to become a general manager at 35 or 36, that seems crazy. That's so young. But when you learn from someone who was a general manager at 28, that really had to prepare you for everything that you, you've dealt with over the last 12 years as the man in charge, right? It, it, it's wild. Like, you know, it's funny. When I, uh, when I was um, flying out to San Diego for my press conference, yeah, I think I was 35 at the time, and I had asked uh, the, the PR department at the Red Sox, I said, hey, do you mind – just burning a, a, a DVD back then. We burn a DVD of Theo's press conference when he got the job with the Red Sox. I just want to be able to watch it on the flight and like kind of prepare myself for the press conference. And so I'm on the plane on the way to San Diego and I pop in the, I pop in that press conference and I just start laughing because I was like, Oh my God, he's a baby. And obviously I was, we're the, we're the same age. I was you know with him at that same time, but, it made me sort of realize, Oh my God, he was 28 years old. You know, I mean, he was, he hadn't yet turned, but he's 30 when we won the world series. I mean, he was 30 years old and had been the GM for three years and we won the world series. It's just wild to think about now. I think when you're in the moment, you're just working, you got your head down, you're not thinking about those things. But when you saw like in the, you know, 10 years later, when I was looking back on it, I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe how young he was, how inexperienced and how much he kind of, you know, rised up to the occasion, you know, to, to be able to handle running the Red Sox in a huge market at that age. Yeah. And you two guys really, you know, have been, have been trendsetters, you know, obviously now it's, it's not atypical to see, to see young executives in baseball. Whereas obviously when I was growing up, I mean, you know, the team, the team I root for, um, which I don't need to talk about has, has always had, general managers that are older than my father and there's nothing wrong with that but but the game has really changed you know obviously it started a lot of it started with the moneyball stuff and then what, what you guys have done and, and it's it's really been transcendent but c- could you imagine growing up did you grow up a red sox fan i'm guessing in new hampshire yeah, yeah. I, I remember i remember meeting lou gorman a couple of times and yeah lou lou who i became friends with at, at, at the red sox so yeah lou is I mean, i'm guessing now in, in his mid 60s at that point so grow, growing up a red sox fan can you imagine First of all, just growing up in New England, you'd never, no one ever thought the Red Sox were ever going to win a World Series, right? It was just one of those things. Did you ever imagine that you would be there and be in the front line like that and, and see it firsthand? Did, did it ever seem possible, especially after everything that happened in the previous seasons, b- battling with the Yankees and then finally getting over the top? It just must have been just an incredible time to to be part of that organization. No, it's actually to be honest with you, that, that whole thing is still very surreal to me. Like, you know, I was reading this big article the other day that, that Jason Stark wrote about our comeback from down three, nothing against the Yankees in 04. And even now having lived it and been there for it, it's still strange to me that that actually happened. Um, you know, I remember my emotions after game three. I remember, I remember going back to, to my apartment and uh, I was living with, uh, two guys I worked with and Theo lived across the hall. And I remember we're all sort of sitting up late that late one night after game three. And um, 
drinking to, to drown our sorrows because we're about to get swept by the Yankees and this season that had so much promise was going to go down the tubes. And the, uh, the game seven from the year before when um, Grady Little left Pedro in the game came on the TV at like, really late. And uh, I tried to turn it off and Theo's like, no, no, like we're going to face our demons. And so we ended up staying up till like five in the morning watching this game. And then we won. And so we did it again the next night. And then we won, and then we did it again the next night. And I tell you, by the time by the time the whole thing was over, we were so exhausted. Um, it, I think everyone was running on fumes, but it really was this incredible experience because everyone after Game Three just felt like I can't believe this is where we are. I can't believe this is happening. And then we won our next eight games. It was like a, it was like a blur, um, but it really was a testament to great character that team had had great character and, and those guys um you know like led by Millar really never never gave up but it is still surreal to to think about that whole 04 run and what it was like and and also I was so young I was 30 and it was happening in you know in my third year you know traveling around the country with the with that team um I appreciated the 16 Cubs thing so much more because I had more experience, I was older, and I, I had some perspective, whereas I think I had no perspective with 04. I was just like, it was just a magical experience, but I didn't have the, the, the life context to understand just how great it was. When you when you look at the two situations, Jed, I know as a football coach, you know, you know, I coached at a number of different schools, but, you know, coming in and taking over a program that maybe hasn't had a lot of success or whatever was – was the system or what you guys did in Boston, was that something that you just kind of picked up and took to Chicago and, and, and kind of implemented? Or is it is it kind of a, a, a team by team? You get in there, you see where everything's at. You know, talk to us a little bit about that process. Yeah. So in Boston, it was very different. Um, when we took over, it was very similar in that very little infrastructure, no analytics, yeah, very few people. But in Boston, they had a really good major league team. And Dan Duquette had left the bones of a good team. You know, Pedro and Derek Lowe were in the in the rotation. You know, we had Nomar. You know, we had Johnny Damon. We had Manny Ramirez. We had Veritek. So the major league team was about, the 4 was about um, finding players to complement that group. So, you know, going out and getting Schilling, you know, bringing in David Ortiz, you know, bringing in Millar, you know, make, making those moves were complementary moves at the major league level, but all the while we were kind of building up the, the infrastructure behind the scenes. So in Boston, we sort of had, I look at it like an umbrella, like the, the major league team was like an umbrella where we could build up the rest of the office and the infrastructure while the team was still successful. And, but in Chicago, we had a bad major league team and we had a bad infrastructure and so really here it turned into a total rebuild where we had to tear it down to the studs and build it back up but your question is interesting because i think when 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 i came from san diego and theo came from boston into chicago we had a formula that we felt like worked really well and there was a lot of confidence like okay we'll stockpile draft picks we'll overspend in in on amateur players, we'll we'll do all these different things we've done in, in Boston and we'll be successful. And like we know how to we know how to do that, run that game plan. And about a month after we got the job here, they changed all the rules about the draft. And they kind of almost directly as a result of what the Red Sox had done in spending so much money on amateur players, they 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 took that away. And so all of a sudden a month in to our job here, Theo and I were like, Oh my God, like this is just got way harder. And so I think it was the best thing that ever happened to us in that we, we couldn't just sort of plug and play what we had done in Boston and Chicago. We really had to step back and then totally reorganize our strategy for how we were going to do it here. I never imagined when we came to Chicago that we were going to lose 101 games our first year. I never imagined we'd lose 96 games our second year. I didn't think we were going to have to do that. But once we realized the draft strategy, the draft rules had changed, we realized the only way that we could be successful here was kind of tearing it down, losing a lot, 
getting high draft picks and then building up. And so it was a good lesson for us in that I think even if you think you have a template that works, I think that every situation is different. And in this situation, we had to totally revise what we were doing. And I think it made us a lot better. So, Jed, you, you were talking about, you know, building through the draft. And obviously you guys have done an amazing job of that with, with guys like Brian and Schwarber and tons of tons of homegrown guys. But what's most interesting to me is the international guys. You guys have done a, just a ridiculously good job signing international talent through the years. Um, how you you talked about they changed the rules so so that teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox couldn't just buy out all the all the best prospects. But explain to to the listeners who don't understand just how complex it is because you have a limited amount of funds that you can only distribute one way. So you you're recruiting guys basically at 16 years old. So you're trying to sign guys at 16 years old and project what they're going to be when they're 20, 21, 22. Just how hard is that? And 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 just how great of a job. Did the organization do an international scouting to build that world championship team? Yeah, I was just saying, our, our, our guys that that um, that run international scouting are, are amazing. And I think that, you know, and I'm sure Coach Whalen can speak to this as far as recruiting. I mean, when you when you're you're signing kids when they're turning 16 years old, but you're these they're scouting these kids at 13 and 14 in the Dominican and in Venezuela, and the ability to see you know, and project talent at that age is so incredibly difficult. And they're a lot more accurate than you would ever imagine at seeing like who's going to be an elite talent and who's not at you know, 13, 14 years old. And then, you know, following these kids to you know, be able to sign them at, at 16. So the scouting process starts at 13 and 14. And, you know, you think about, you know, how, um, how non-developed a lot of these, you know, you have your really strong 13, 14 year olds, but you have some, some really skinny and weak 13 and 14 year olds that the best scouts will project and say, listen, this, this kid with more strength will be this fast. And his actions are, are so good that you should give a, give a kid like that a million dollars to sign. It's, um, it takes a lot of baseball knowledge and a lot of courage to be able to, to see that in the future and, and be willing to put your name on it. So just one more quick thing on, on the, on the, the minor league process. This year has been such a crazy year for, for so many reasons. Obviously the shortened season, but what I think a lot of people don't realize is there's been no minor league baseball. So for an executive, for a general manager, what's the process like for developing some of your high-end pipeline guys, you know, guys like Miguel Amaya, guys like Brennan Davis, those kind of guys who aren't ready for the big leagues I mean, what are you guys doing on a day-in, day-out basis to try to prepare them when they're basically losing an entire season of development? Yeah, so um, every team had a uh, – they called it an alternate site this year. So our, ours was at South Bend where we have a minor league team. And so we were able we were able to have 60 players um, in the organization that were kind of ready. And so we could put some of our, our top prospects at South Bend and they could play in our squad games and work with our coaches – but that's a select few guys for the most part, our, our minor league coaches have done an amazing job of, you know, our pitchers, for example, are, are throwing bullpens and they all have, you know, they all have find ways to, to get the data to our guys and our, our coaches are watching video and, and trying to improve different pitches, you know, that way. And it's really challenging without competition. And the truth is, I don't know, what it's going to look like next spring because a lot of these guys will have gone almost a full year without competing in the sport that they compete in, right? Like it's hard to, you can't just go out and play a baseball game that easily. So they might face live hitters in a batting cage or something, but they're not actually playing games. So we're going to have instructional league in Arizona and, and it, over the next couple of weeks and that will help. But the lost season is going to be a big deal. And I think it's going to, it's going to derail some careers. I think that's just the reality that there's guys that, that may not come back the same. And I think our job as a team was to make sure that everyone's conditioning, everyone's, um, you know, throwing, everyone's hitting, you know, stays as close to the same as possible. You can never replicate a season, but if we can do everything we can to stay as close to that as possible, then we have a best chance of the best chance of not having careers derailed. Cause I think we know that it, it's going to happen in some cases. Jed, I know you mentioned earlier the whole, you know, the free agent, you know, signings and yeah. Boston, you know, the shilling situation. 
Uh, I, I believe there was some story about spending Thanksgiving with the shillings or something like that. But just in terms of the, the, you know, your career, talk to us a little bit about like, what was, what, what, what do you look back on saying like that was a great free agent signing? And then what do you look back and say, man, what was I thinking? Like what, 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 what yeah. I think, you know, great. It's a great question. So the shilling one to me was, um, that one was just pretty obvious. I'll never forget. We were, we wanted to trade for him. And I remember, and this never happens ever. We wanted to trade for him. And I remember Theo got a phone call from their GM and they put two lists together of four players each. And it was like, you know, um, two players from list A, two, two players from list B. And if you can do that, then we'll have a deal. And the way they put the list together, it was like, yes, like we're in. And, and the weird thing is like, if they just, if they had put the list together slightly differently, like there was really good players like Hanley Ramirez or John Lester on those lists, but the way they were put together, it allowed us to, to, to construct a deal that we would do. And that deal came together really quickly. And the challenge was then, um, was when si- convincing Kurt to sign with the Red Sox, that was hard because the Yankees were in there and, and he wasn't, you know, at the time it was a lot of money. Um, and, you know, Theo and I flew out with Larry Lucchino. We flew out for three days and, and tried to convince him to sign. And the truth is we ended up eating Thanksgiving at their house, which was amazing. You know, they, they made us Thanksgiving. And then I got food poisoning, like probably the worst food poisoning of my adult life from that Thanksgiving. And the, <laughs> next, the next day was the deadline. We had 72 hours to sign them. The next day was the deadline. And I was, I guess I've never been sicker. And I remember the sitting on his couch. I didn't want to go to the negotiation. And Larry Lucchino was like, no, no, you have to go. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this without you know, embarrassing myself. And so I sat there on the couch in this zen-like state, just trying not to vomit the entire time. And we ended up getting the deal done. Um, it might be one of my prouder moments because I was sick for the next two days after that, but somehow I, I held it together for the, for the negotiation. Um, but that one was really obvious. I mean, he, he, and he wanted the big stage. We needed that kind of guy. Um, that was one that will always stick out as, I guess it was more of a trade, but that was a, a, we ended up signing him to a deal and, and he was worth every penny. He was, we needed that personality to, to get over the hump. Um, you know, the best signings, I've ever had I mean, Ortiz is the best signing we'll ever have. That was, you know, I think we signed him for $1.2 million. Uh, he had been released by the twins. And the, the truth, the, the truth of the story is that we had worked out Brad Fulmer and we were like trying to decide whether to sign Brad Fulmer or David Ortiz. And my resume would look a little different right now if we'd signed Brad Fulmer. So uh, I'm thankful that we signed Ortiz. Um, you know, I'll go back on one that I, that like, I remember, uh, from the Red Sox, because those are in the past, and I can talk about them more, that was a good lesson that we signed um, Edgar Renneria um, to play shortstop. Uh, we signed him in 2005, and he didn't really want to come to Boston. I think he was very concerned about le- leaving a, a, a very comfortable place like St. Louis and, and, and going to, to Boston, but we had a lot of money, and we sort of offered way more money than anyone else did. And, and, and we were so excited to get this young shortstop and, and it was a good lesson. He was reluctant to play in a market that big. And we sort of like, we pushed him into doing it financially and it was never a good fit. Um, he was never comfortable playing in Boston. Um, after that first year, we, we he made 30 errors, I think the first year and it felt like it was 45 and we ended up trading him to the, traded him to the Braves and it was kind of a three-way deal. And it ended up later in the winter getting Coco Crisp who played center field for us. And so we ended up getting out of the deal. Okay. But we had to pay a lot of money to the Braves to get out of that contract. And it was just a great lesson. And like, you know what? The guy had reluctance for a reason. And he ended up going, I think he won a batting title, like one of the first couple of years he was in Atlanta. So like, honestly, the Red Sox thing was a blip in his career, but like I said, it was a good, it was a good career lesson of use that soft focus. And if a player is reluctant, you know, there's a reason he's reluctant. He's not going to perform. 
Breaking news, Kurt Schilling gave Jed Hoyer food poisoning, and you're listening to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score, along with Wesleyan Athletic Director Mike Whalen. I'm Chris Grace, and we're so proud to have Chicago Cubs General Manager and Wesleyan 1996 alum and Cardinal Career Save Leader Jed Hoyer still holding on to that record, Jed. It's it's still going Still going someone strong. Has break, someone has to break that record. I mean, at this point, it's getting ridiculous. It's not even that many saves. Yeah, well, I cover Wesley in baseball, and the, the the problem is, as long as Woody's there, he mixes and matches, baby. So there's going to continue to be different dudes. When you know, my favorite from a baseball perspective, my favorite Woody story is I was calling a, a NESCAC tournament game, and they had a guy on third, and they they had a, an okay team, but they had were dealing with some injuries. They had a guy on third with with one out and it was an 0-2 count and he, and he suicide squeezed on an 0-2 count. And after the game, I saw him, I said, Woody, did you, was that a safety squeeze or a suicide squeeze? He goes, oh no, it was a suicide squeeze. I said, on an 0-2 count? He said, yeah, they never would have seen it coming. I said, well, what, if, <laughs> what if it doesn't work? He said, well, if it doesn't work, we would have lost the game. Who cares? And that, that's, did they, that's, they won the game? They won? On oh yeah, they won the, they won the game. Yeah. Oh yeah. They won the game. That was, that was, Classic Woody. So, so Jed, uh, real quick, you've you've had the luxury of of working with some of the best managers in the modern era of baseball. The, the likes, obviously, of Tito Francona and, and Joe Madden, and now you've got a young manager in David Ross who's doing a great job. You guys are having a, a great, uh, I don't know what you call it, start to the season, finish yep. to the season, whatever you want to call yep. it, fifty games of the season. Um, obviously, there's differences be, between those three guys, but all three of those guys are are are, are pretty likable. They have pretty outgoing personalities. Um, not what you would, they would all be considered kind of players managers. What's your favorite Joe Madden story or, and Tito Francona story? If, if you have a chance to, uh, to, to drop a little knowledge on both of those guys. Yeah. So they're very different, but I do think that, um, what you said is exactly right. I think that with, with those guys, I think over the course of a baseball season, you can't, you can't just burn guys out. You can't the yelling and the screaming and the, it doesn't work and you have to, you know, you have to have players that want to play for you. And, and I feel like, you know, with, with Tito, I, I don't know if it's a story, but like my, my, my vision of, of, of Tito would be, I'd go down almost every day, probably like one or two o'clock. I'd go down to the clubhouse to, to meet with them. And he was always playing cribbage with the players. So he was always sitting there in his office and it was always Mike Lowell or it was always Pedroia or some collection of players and they'd be playing cribbage. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but now that I look back on it, you know, it was brilliant. Like that was his way of having the players in his office, you know, gambling with them, having fun with them, but also the conversations they were having while they're doing it, he was delivering a message. Right. And, and so his way of communicating with the players was things like that, right. Come to my office, let's play cards and let's, you know, let, 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 like, I'm going to, I'm going to have fun with you, but we're also going to have some serious conversations about what's going on. And, and, and that's, that's the way I'm going to, to deal, to deal with people. Um, and then with, with Joe Madden, uh, Joe was, um, you know, he, he believed that like the, over the course of the whole summer, you cannot come kind of, as say like hold it so tight. You can't, um, you need to sort of get away. You need to let, like, let it breathe. And so he was constantly trying to figure out ways to, to, to make it light and make it fun. You know, and, I'll, and my, one of my favorite memories from him was our first year. Uh, we got swept in a three-game series in, in, in St. Louis. And I think we were in, you know, that was our first year. We were, you know, probably like four or five, over 500, but we were teetering at that point. And, um, we were going to New York, so we flew to New York, and I get a phone call, and it's like, hey, um, are you okay if I expense a magician? And I was like, what? And he was like, I want to hire a magician tonight. I was like, okay. And so, you know, he, he goes out, he finds a magician in New York, and he brings him into the clubhouse, and the guy performs magic before the game. Um, and we ended up, I think we swept the series, and yep. going on, and, and, and playing great. And it was just like he had a great feel for that group and a great feel for when to, you know, rather than get mad at the team who just got swept by the Cardinals and played terrible, you know, and, and got in at five in the morning after Sunday night baseball, he did, went the opposite. It was like, listen, this group needs some levity right now. And, 
I think he had the exact right touch with that. And so I think that's the biggest thing is over the course of the whole summer, you have to know, you know, when to sort of let the tension out. And then you have to know when, to, when it's time to be serious and when you have to yell at somebody, or when you have to have a team meeting and, you know, both Tito, Terry Francona and, and Joe Madden were really good at that. Um, and again, I think that's where baseball and football are different. I think that, you know, in football, you've got 16 games, you know, every one of those is worth 10 of our games. Um, you can, you can sort of play with that kind of intensity 16 times. You could practice that way a few times a week in, in baseball. When you do that every day, you can't, you can't mentally hold up over seven months and, and the best managers know when to push and pull really well. So Jed, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, uh, I guess, uh, themes today, uh, you know, people seem to be talking a lot about is, is what's the value of a liberal arts education? You know, what, what is, what does the liberal arts education do for you? You know, those kinds of things. So I, I guess the question I wanted to ask is, you know, what, what are some of the things you learned at West? talked a little bit about the baseball side of things, but mm-hmm. what are some of the other things that, that you learned at West that kind of prepared you for a career in professional baseball? Sure. Um, well, first of all, actually something Costa used to say a lot that I agree with is that, you know, ultimately I think what you're paying for at a place like Wesleyan is the associations you end up making that you end up being surrounded by a ton of really bright, really interesting, really motivated people. And, you know, the, in life, the more you surround yourself with people like that, the more you're going to raise your game, you're going to raise your level and raise your expectations. And I felt that way at Wesleyan. You know, I'm, I came from this little tiny town in New Hampshire and also I was surrounded by all these kids that had way more life experiences than me and, and were certainly brighter than me. And, you know, I think you kind of sink or swim in that environment. And I think that's really important. Um, so I, I think a lot of it is just, I, I, I kind of credit the people that I surrounded myself with, with you know, kind of motivating me and bringing out the best. And so I think that's, I think that's part of it is just the associations are, are so great. And then I also just think that, you know, it teaches you how to think and, and think critically. And like I mentioned a little bit about, you know, coming into Chicago and having the rules changed on us and having to figure out a different way to, to be successful. I think that's what life is, right? Life is about taking a, a challenge and, and, and taking a, a, a problem and figuring out how to solve it. And you, you think about solving a problem or leading a department by, by thinking critically and, and, and making, and making decisions. And I think Wesleyan and a liberal arts education in general, it teaches you how to think critically and how to question things and, um, you know, how to, um, you know, come up with, come up with, you know, different answers to different, to different issues. And it's not just about, you know, the, the book learning part, it's about, it's about being willing to, to, to tackle, to tackle an issue thoroughly and to think about it from all angles. And I think that's what the workforce kind of demands these days. And just to piggyback on that, uh, as we get ready to wrap this up, Jed, we, we, we certainly appreciate you giving us so much time. Obviously it's a really busy time during the year. If you were to talk to current Wesleyan students, obviously it's a crazy situation, but what would be the one piece of advice that you would try to give them um, in any realm, really? Uh, I guess I would say this about the current situation. I would say that um, as you get older, I think a lot of the years blend together and you start, you know, you try to figure out what, what was freshman year, what was sophomore year. Those things become a little more difficult to discern when you get 20, 30 years out. But you're never going to forget this COVID year. You know, you're going to look back and, and you're going to remember, okay, that was the year 2000 and this is what I went through. And, you know, one of the things that we really preach to the Cubs this year is that, yeah, this whole year is messed up and your personal things, your, your stats and your personal achievements aren't going to matter, right? Ultimately, this is going to be about getting through this as a group and about, you know, kind of how well did you, you know, maintain your mood? How well did you maintain the work you were doing? Uh, how well did you sort of help the community around you and sort of getting through it together? And so I think it's, it's kind of nice and unique in a way that you have a year where you know you're going to remember it. And so I just think that, you know, rather than 
complain about the things that are taken away from you right now, the things you wish you were doing, just think about making the best of it because it is one of the years that you're going to remember without a doubt. And it's going to be different. Um, there's going to be plenty of time in the future to kind of get back to what you're doing before. But right now, just focus on making the best of this um, because it's not something you're going to, it's not something you're going to forget down the road. Uh, and then advice for Wesleyan students, you know, I always think to myself, um, and this is, of course, I think we're all shaped by our own experiences, but, you know, whatever you think your path is going to be, it's not going to be, you know, um, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns and different things that are, are going to happen. And everything, let's say you want, you have a, a specific job in mind that you want to accomplish someday. But that line, you're not going to be able to draw a straight line from Wesleyan to that job. And the experiences you have along the way can be unbelievably valuable in shaping what you eventually do. You know, I look back at my experience that, you know, I think I, I grew a ton coaching baseball at Wesleyan under Costi, and I learned a lot about baseball strategy. I think that when I was working, you know, for companies or working for consulting firms, I learned a ton of skills, whether it's, you know, building business models or, you know, kind of honing some quantitative skills or, you know, building board decks or whatever it might be, things that might have bored me at the time, but, but ended up really, you know, proving to be valuable down the road. Um, that helped me in my career. And so if you're in a job or in an experience that you don't think is, you know, uh, this isn't what I want to do, or this isn't exactly in the right direction, just remember like the things you're learning in that role could end up helping you immensely down the road. And I just think that knowing that your path is not going to be a straight line and knowing it's going to have twists and turns and knowing that, um, you know, you can gather different nuggets along the way towards that eventual goal, I think is really valuable because I would have, you know, I would have killed to have my job. Like if, I, if you told me in 1996 that you're going to be the GM of the Cubs, I would have said like, Oh my God, that's incredible. I'm all in. But I also know had I started an internship with the Cub or with a baseball team, my right out of college, I would not be as good at my job now as I am without all those different experiences along the way. And so I just think like, you know, enjoy the journey, gather as many nuggets as you can along the way from the journey and realize that you can still end up getting to the place you want to go. Uh, it just might not be quite as, as fast and direct as you hope. I think that's, that's about as good as it gets coach. What do you think? That's a pretty good spot. Do you think that's a pretty good spot to leave this one off? I think it's awesome. Jed, we can't thank you enough. What a, what a great, uh, great hour we had. It went by really quickly and, uh, you're the best buddy. Mike, appreciate it. Hey guys, that was a lot of fun. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you so much. That's Jed Hoyer, the general manager of the Chicago Cubs Wesleyan graduate. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at Wesleyan underscore athletics on Facebook at Wesleyan dot athletics on Instagram at Wesleyan underscore athletics All of these podcasts will be available on SoundCloud. We've got some great guests coming up. We really want to thank Jed, of course, for spending as much time with with us as he did. This has been an episode of Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. For Coach Mike Whalen, I'm Chris Grace. For our producer, Mike O'Brien, until next time, so long, everybody.